Perhaps you've recently walked through the forest, a large forest, a more mature, older forest, and as you've walked through the forest, you came upon an area where a large tree had been standing, a large tree, a huge tree. And for whatever reason, that huge tree, it had been there, maybe you had been there before when you were passing that way, but that huge tree had fallen over. You've probably seen things like that. I remember years ago in the forest behind my parents' house, there was a tornado of sorts or something, and, and huge trees came down in a, in a mature forest. And it's interesting, when that happens, when that happens, what happens with the fall of that great tree? Well, it's inevitable, isn't it? All the other little trees, many of them often, come down with it. That big giant, as it falls, it takes down many with it. And that's a picture I want you to have in your mind right now. The giant tree having fallen and taking with it the little trees that were all standing around it. That's a picture I want to have in our minds as we meditate on the passage this evening. Maybe you know of people. People who in your life were spiritual giants. Significant spiritual examples to you who now have fallen into sin. Friends, perhaps, that have shocked you. Friends you looked up to spiritually who have fallen recently or maybe some time ago in big and unexpected ways, shocking, publicly perhaps, publicly, and it's all known, it's in the papers. We hear of Christians like that who fall, don't we? It always, it always disturbs me. It always shakes me when I hear stories like that. We know stories like Ravi Zacharias, for instance, right? But those who are even closer, who fall into a sin, maybe publicly or even privately, someone you admired spiritually, and then you hear about how they have this glaring sin in their life, and somehow your assessment of them is different, isn't it? They've fallen, a faithful mother in Israel who lets you down because suddenly you realize, well, like me, she's a sinner too. When big trees fall, they often take other little trees with them, don't they? And consider the anti-witness. I prayed about witnessing, living as Christians in an unchristian world, sharing the gospel by the way we live and how we speak and how we act. But consider the anti-witness, the negative effect it has when someone who is a known Christian falls into sin. When a father who is supposed to be the leader of his family is found to have addiction to pornography. Or when leaders in the church are not living like they ought to, a pastor or someone else. Or a close friend. I'm, I'm painting these pictures in our minds because that's the focus I want to have with you this evening as we study God's Word together. We read from 1 Corinthians 10, and I'm going to look with you particularly at verse 12 in its context. 1 Corinthians 10 from verse 12 is our focus verse. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth Take heed, lest he fall. This is God's word to us this evening. Three thoughts will uh, organize our study. First, beware of self-confidence. Beware of self-confidence. Second, trust in Christ alone. You probably knew I was going to go there, but we're going, to, we're going to study that together. And then third, consider and take action. Consider and take action. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Paul is speaking here to the Christians in Corinth. This section, like I said earlier, Chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, verse 1, it forms a unit in the book of Corinthians. In fact, 
Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, or what we call the first letter to the book of to the Corinthians, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians had posed to him. They must have sent him correspondence, and he's responding to them. And so in chapter 8, it says, now touching things, now is touching things offered to idols. He's answering a question they had. They had asked him a question. Because in the church there in Corinth, uh, there was a discussion, a debate. And there were the so-called weak Christians, and then there were the so-called strong Christians. And the weak Christians were saying, but these idols around us, we don't want any association with them. Nothing. Nothing to do with it. We came out of that. We want to totally reject any form of worldliness. Stay far away from anything that smells like worldliness. But then there were the so-called strong Christians who had knowledge. And they knew that these idols were just stones, just wood, metals, whatever. The idol is nothing. And so it's not the idol itself that's the problem these Christians were saying, but it's, it's the sin that's in back of these things. In fact, Paul himself says there are demons in back of the idolatry. And so there was this conversation taking place in the Corinthian church, what, what it should be our relationship, what should be our perspective when we deal with things out there, the world. And you might say, well, we don't have idols here in Kalamazoo, you know, we don't... Um, it doesn't, this is one step removed really from our culture and world. It doesn't really apply to us directly, does it? But not so quickly now. The city of Athens, Paul said, was full of idolatry. And the city of Kalamazoo is full of idolatry too. But just different idols. Because as John Calvin says, our hearts are factories of idols. We're always creating something. Something to worship in place of God. Something that gains our attention, that grabs us, that holds on to us, and distracts us from worshiping God alone. That's an idol. And so these Corinthians were struggling with us. What should we do? What should be our relationship to idols? What should be the relationship between the church and culture, society? These are very relevant questions today as well. Well, we're not going to be able to answer these questions fully. Paul does it, he does it in three chapters. We're just going to look at a section, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first part. And it starts with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul says, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, like we said, and this church... How would you describe the Corinthian church? Well, when we read the letter and the context and the other letters too, words like this might come to mind. Divisions, immorality, idolatry, false teaching. And that seems to be the problem that was happening, those problems in the Corinthian church. Terrible problems. Paul, though, says, moreover, brethren. He addresses them as brothers. Actually, he starts his letter by calling them saints. Because he's speaking to the believers now in Corinth. And though they were known for their problems, yet he addresses them as brethren. And he's helping them think through now, like I said in this larger section, how do we associate with sinful society around us? How do we deal with worldliness and avoid worldliness so that we're not led astray, as so many were? And the, weak, the so-called weak Christians were those who avoided it, and the so-called strong Christians were those who associated with it because they said, we're stronger, we can do this. Now, this section, the first part of chapter 10, actually from verse 1 to verse 14, really, 14 is a transitional verse, it's, it's a warning. He's, he's particularly giving a warning against worldliness in these verses, actually warning against idolatry. You can, you can think worldliness, being like the world, being led astray by the thinking of the world, being conformed to the world and not conformed to the image of Christ. Warnings against idolatry, verses 1 through 14. And he's particularly speaking to the strong believers here, although to all of them, because they thought they could freely associate with the world and the practices of the world even, and were somehow immune, protected against the temptations that came with these practices. They were living 
presumptuously. They were living as if somehow they were immune to the dangers of worldliness. They could associate with these things without falling into the temptations that others fell into, the so-called strong believers, because they had knowledge. They knew. They had faith in Christ. They knew. And Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, I, I would not that you should be ignorant. In other words, I want you to understand this. He's saying it in double negative, very, very strong language in the Greek. I want you to know this, brother. This is very important. I want you to know this. You may have knowledge, true, but be careful. Be very careful. Self-knowledge often leads to self-confidence and self-trust. So Paul warns against idolatry. He does that a little later in the chapter. And he also warns particularly against the sin of presumption. And that's what we see in these verses. Verse 12, then, is really the pinnacle of his warning. And he uses a proverb. It's a proverb. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. This is actually quite common to other proverbs in Scripture. Proverbs 16, verse 18, we we know it well, I think. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Proverbs 28, verse 14. Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. And so this verse, verse 12, is, is similar language, actually, that Paul uses. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, him, he, it could really refer to anyone, can it? It's a generic he there, I think, referring to all people. It applies to all of us, every single one of us, whoever thinks they stand. Stand to his idea of being immovable, unshakable, securely grounded. No, no, I'm not one of those Christians who are going to be led astray by that sin or this sin. Maybe you see others who have fallen into that sin or this sin. And you say, well, thank you, God, I'm not like that, right? Like the, like, almost like the Pharisee in the temple. Thank, we thank thee, O God, because you, thou hast kept us from these things. Whoever thinks he stands, it applies to us all. To think is to suppose to be true in this case. And then the warning, take heed, watch out, consider carefully. Because falling is, well, an unsettledness or coming to an end. So this is a warning truth expressed by a simple proverb, and, well, Paul doesn't just give it by itself. In fact, it comes, verse 12 comes after 11 verses, particularly uh, verses 5 uh, through, through 8 or so, nine, 10. He gives some Old Testament examples to remind us, word pictures, stories from the Old Testament. In fact, he says these examples are given for us to remind us how we should be kept. Verse 7 is the first. Actually, I'll give you all four. The first, verse 7 is the first one. Neither be ye idolatry. Well, first, verse 6. Now, these things are examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And the first one is the, the warning against idolatry. Idolatry in verse 7. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul here is turning to Exodus chapter 32. And we know that story, I think. I'll remind you of it. That's when Moses went up the mountain to receive the commandments from the Lord. And while he was there up in the mountain, uh, Aaron and the people formed a golden calf, and they started to worship this golden calf not long after they received the Ten Commandments. And Paul reminds uh, these believers in Corinth of that very history. Now, the Corinthian believers were likely Gentile believers, not Jews, and yet he, he, he brings them into this history, and he reminds them of their fathers in the wilderness who actually uh, fell into sin. It's very interesting to see how Paul, what he's doing in verses uh, 4 and 5 earlier, he's saying that all the people who were rescued from Egypt all went through the Red Sea. They were baptized in the Red Sea. So he's speaking about the church in the wilderness who had been baptized in the Red Sea. Verse 2, 
And they all eat of the same spiritual meat. They all enjoyed manna from heaven. I think the children remember how every, every Sabbath day, there, every, every day there was manna and then enough on the weekends for, for covering the Sabbath. All the people enjoyed this heavenly food, this angel's food as it's called in one place. And all the people drank from the rock, remember the rock that, from which water came. And Paul here actually goes even so far as to, to show that that rock was a picture of Christ. They all drank from this rock. And so what he's saying here is the whole congregation of the children of Israel, all the people, the children included, and the oldest ones too, they all enjoy these spiritual blessings, great spiritual blessings. But, and here's the warning, many of them died in the wilderness. Verse 5, with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So you see what Paul is doing here. We're not immune from the, ta- the temptation, the danger of temptation, of falling into temptation. None of us. And he's also saying that even the church collectively gathered here, the visible church, who have been baptized, and even many who have enjoyed Holy Communion, he's, he's making an analogy this, to this, I think, as well, drinking from the rock and eating the manna, Even us, we're not immune like the ones in the Old Testament. Many of them were displeasing to the Lord. And the first example he gives is idolatry. Remember, remember how they made the golden calf. And they fell into that grievous sin there in Exodus chapter 32. Or verse verse 8. Verse 8. Remember, let us not commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. He's referring now to Numbers 25, where they have, at least probably that place, where there was uh, fornication committed by some of the, even the leaders in the camp. The leaders of God's people fell into sexual immorality and like, other sins like that. Today we have other sins than, than relations with foreign women. Sins of lust and porn and personal satisfaction. But these sins are just as powerful, aren't they? And so Paul is saying to the church, also in our day now, through the Holy Spirit, beware, we must not commit fornication. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Numbers 21, remember the story, children, how, how the snakes came and bit the people? They were, uh, they were murmuring, they were tempting God, they were, they were uh, not serving God as they ought, and the snakes came and they bit the people. I think they, I forget which, exactly t- which temptation it was there in Numbers 21. And then God told Moses to make the bronze serpent and put it on a pole so that when people would look to the serpent, a figure of Christ, a, a picture of Christ from John 3, they would live. And that was a temptation that, again, many people fell prey to and died in the wilderness. And then finally, verse 10, neither murmur ye, as some some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Here is the sin of discontent. The sin of discontent. Complaining. Um, Unthankful. Not satisfied, but rather lusting after coveting other things, other gifts. Now, these are all pictures of how the church visible in the Old Testament was tempted and how many actually fell into sin. With many of them, God was not well pleased. And so Paul is saying, look at the past And now measure yourselves, identify, assess this present by the past. You see, the strong Christians were there in Corinth. And they were saying, no, but we can associate with these things. We can walk through the world without being affected by the world in a bad way. But Paul says, no, be careful. You are able to fall just like your fathers in the wilderness. You may have knowledge. You may have insight. You may even have the right experiences but you're not immune to temptation. And that's Paul's warning, his warning in these words. Take heed, he says, verse 12, take heed. 
That word actually is a very important word. You can, you can search it. It's used quite often in Scripture. It means to beware of, to watch out for, to pay attention or to take notice of possible dangers. Take heed. To be ready to learn about danger so that you are prepared. You know, when you get into a car, maybe, you're, maybe children, when you get into your car, your mom says, be sure to put on your seatbelt. Why do you wear a seatbelt when you're in a car? Well, it's not just because it feels good, because sometimes it restricts us, right? We wear a seatbelt because we know that cars can be dangerous, and sometimes there are accidents. Of course, we try to avoid them, but they happen. And the seatbelt is there to protect us should that accident happen. And so we wear a seatbelt. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, take heed, pay attention, be prepared for danger, watch out for worldliness. This leaven that can somehow infiltrate our lives and lead us away from a a lifestyle of, of, of close walk with Christ, often gradually, subtly turning from our first love. Paul warns. He warns these so-called educated Christians. And there are times in our lives maybe we are a little careless this way. We, we, we don't wear the seatbelt as it were. We leave ourselves unguarded. We overlook the danger of temptation. We put ourselves in situations where we know we may be prone to stumble or where we've stumbled before, where we have somehow given in. Um, we're self-confident, like somehow we're going to get through this. We'll, I just talked to someone in my church this morning after church, called him to see how he was doing. And he said, Pastor, I know everything's going to be okay. I hope so. I hope so. And sometimes we can be like that. I'm, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to get through this one. I'm going to do it myself. Self-confident. Presumptuous. You see, the sin of presumption is a, is a bold trust in ourselves or a disregard for normal restraints. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says on presumptive sins, he actually says there are four kinds or four things in a sin in order to make it presumptuous. He says either it's a sin against light and knowledge or it's a sin committed with, he says, deliberation or a sin committed with the design of sinning merely for the sake of sinning or worse yet, it must be a sin committed through a man's rash confidence in his own strength. And it's particularly that fourth one that we must be on guard against. I think that what, that's what Paul is getting at here. Sinning due to self-confidence. So, what are we going to do for entertainment as a family? What are you going to watch? What are you going to listen to? How are you going to spend time? We can be strong. We'll turn it off when it gets bad, right? Yet, be careful. We're susceptible. Where are we going to go for a holiday? There's so many decisions, right? I don't, I, it's hard for me to make up situations in your life because each one of us have different, different temptations, different sins. And yet, when we think that we can by ourselves fight against these temptations, that's when we're putting ourselves in a dangerous place. I'll give you another example from Scripture. Remember Samson, that strong man Samson? So many times when he was in danger, he took a jawbone of an axe and he slew a thousand men, Right? So many times he was able in the past to just shake it off, take the gates of the city and carry them to the top of the hill. But then with Delilah, when the Philistines came upon him again, after he was really playing with sin, he was being presumptuous. And when his head had been shaven, then he stood up and it says he wanted to do it as before, right? He was going to act as before. Everything's going to be okay. But then his great strength had left him. His great strength had left him. Some people, sometimes we think we're too big to fall, like large banks that cannot fail, right? But we don't realize it's not our strength. It's not our ability. It's really the spirit at work through believers that keeps them from stumbling, that protects them from temptation. Peter, remember the Apostle Peter? Now this is a New Testament example. He said to Jesus, 
though others deny thee, not me, Lord. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stand with thee all the way to the end. That was Peter. But it didn't happen that way. So the sin of self-confidence is very deceitful. And these examples are given in Scripture to warn us. Verse 11. Verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them. He's talking about the Old Testament examples. Happen unto them for examples, in examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Not just to, uh, to recognize the possibility of falling but to take heed. What is the state of our spiritual walk with the Lord? Are we walking closely, closely, closely to Christ? The fear of God, which produces a fear and an avoidance of sin, of temptation, of worldliness. Love for Christ, which creates a dependence upon Him and upon His Spirit for guidance in every way. You know, there are times in a Christian's life where it's high and it's low, right? There's times when we're walking close, and there's times when we're, we're not so close. But it's particularly in times when we might think that we're standing that we have to take heed, because that's when we might be most susceptible to the sin of presumption. And so we, we pray with David, don't we? Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. Psalm, Psalm 19, let them not have dominion over me. You know, it always shakes me the most. There was a pastor at a mission somewhere in the world, I won't give the details, a couple years ago, a missionary pastor, not from one of our churches, but from a Napark church. And this man, it, it surprised everyone. I was with his colleague two weeks ago, and I said, yeah, it just, it just, it just shook me so much to see. Who would have guessed it? He said, yeah, we never knew. We never realized but this man fell terribly, had relations with some of the uh, situation there where he was working, and then, and then it snowballed, and he denied it, and now his family is destroyed, and his wife is remarried, and he's out of the ministry. He's actually in jail, a pastor, a man of God, in one of the churches that are similar to us in some ways. And that always shakes me. That shakes me because he must have thought he was strong. He was a man of God, after all, a pastor in a faithful church. And you see, that's what Paul is getting at here. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed. What should we do if we're living presumptuously? I'm moving to the second thought now because I've described the danger, but now let's look to the solution. What should we do well, there's several things, and I think verse 13 particularly helps us in this. Paul answers his own warning in verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, he says, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Just a few thoughts from this verse. Just unpack a few things that we can learn, I think, from this verse. And the first is this. God's Word, God Himself, reminds us that temptations are common. Temptations to sin are very common. We have a culture that covers them up, don't we? And there's not, it's not wrong necessarily, but we want to hide these things. It's, it's hard to admit that we have a weakness in this area or that way, area perhaps, that we're, we're addicted to this sin or that sin. Maybe it's greed, or maybe it's pride, or maybe it's lust, or maybe it's, maybe it's discontent, or one of the other ugly sins that we cover over so nicely. But God's Word says that temptations are common. We all experience temptations, and it's common to experience temptations because the devil often tempts. He wants to see big trees fall. He wants to see faithful Christians uh, polluted by a sinful, uh, fall into sin. Even Jesus, even Jesus, the sinless one, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
he also needed to prove that he could stand in temptation. And he did, of course, gloriously. It's a wonderful chapter 4 of Matthew. It's lovely to see how the second Adam stood when the, where the first Adam had fallen. He stood better. You see, temptations are common. This is common. That's a word used in verse 13. We should never live as if there are no temptations. We should never drive our cars as if there are no dangers on the road and just say, ah, seatbelts, who cares, right? And in the same way, we should never live, as Christians particularly, as if the devil is not going to try to make us stumble into sin, idolatry, worldliness. Many of God's people in the Old Testament were tempted. Many of God's people in the New Testament were tempted. And you think that we are immune from this? Absolutely not. That we are tempted should not surprise us. And that many people fall into sin and temptation should not surprise us either. Even in the church. Because, yes, God's Word calls us saints. And yes, in God's sight, we are declared righteous in Christ. But we're still sinful. And we're still subject to the flesh, as we heard this morning. And we're still able to sin. In fact, when it happens, we shouldn't be gossiping about it as if it's some new thing that took place. We should rather be running to apply the remedy. Look to Jesus. Find healing in Him. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, or no, in Galatians 6, isn't it? Quick to, quick to restore as Christ was quick to restore Peter. Peter sinned grievously, terribly denying his Lord. But three days later, Christ restored him. Sought him out anyway and restored him a few days later amongst the, in the presence of the disciples. And so we should not be surprised by these things. Satan is trying to destroy the church. And maybe it's through sexual temptations. Maybe it's through false teachings. Maybe it's through those secret sins of greed and envy and covetousness and these terrible things that lie so subtly below the surface. Maybe it's through false, well, whatever. We shouldn't be surprised when we see it. We should rather be quick to run and apply the remedy to point others to Christ. Jesus was not surprised. He was not caught off by the devil's attacks. Rather, we must be prepared. And that's one of the reasons I think Paul gives us this verse. We must be prepared because it's common to men. That's the first thing I think we see from verse 13. Secondly, verse 13b, God is faithful who will not suffer you. He will not allow you to be tempted above that ye are able. In other words, he doesn't allow temptations to come to his people beyond their ability. God is faithful. And here's the secret, isn't it? Here is the secret, our, our hope, even when we're facing temptations, perhaps in our lives, we remember God and His character of faithfulness and love and tender mercy, sovereignly directing all things, even designing the temptations to really be tests of faith and to challenge, perhaps, in order to grow and mature. If God is our Father in Christ then he will be sure that even situations of the greatest temptation will somehow work out for our good. Even Peter's denial, the Lord used to restore Peter and to prepare Peter for years of ministry, of, of leadership in the church, probably to restore many others as well, because that's how the Lord often works, to make him a true shepherd, Peter's denial. Do you trust in God's faithfulness? That's a diagnostic question. When you are tempted to sin, whatever your favorite temptation is, whatever your weakness is, Hebrews, Hebrews 12 talks about the knee that's out of joint. You know, when you get your knee out of joint, when you do it once, it's bad. When you do it a second time, you've got to be very careful, don't you? Because that knee will go out of joint again and again. If you're not careful, you've got to protect it. So if you're going to play basketball or something else, you've got to wear the brace. In the same way in spiritual life, when we fall in once, we're susceptible, we're weak. It might happen again. And when it happens a second time, watch out because... That's where the devil's going to come. That's, he's going to attack the weakest point. And when he comes and he wants to tempt you to lust or when he tempts you to greed or when he tempts you to whatever you, your favorite sin is, who do you trust in? Do you trust in your own ability? I got this one. I'm going to try harder. This time I'm going to make it. I'm going to fight harder. 
Or do you trust in Christ, the one who has overcome, the one who was tempted and stood strong? We often fail because we are trusting in ourselves. But Paul reminds us God is faithful. God is faithful. Confidence in God, not confidence in ourselves. Third, verse 13 again, God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that she may be able to bear it or to endure it. How can we endure temptation? God will make a way of escape, it says. Because, first of all, Christ has endured. This is our way of escape. This is our hope, isn't it? When we feel the power of evil, when we feel our own weakness, when we feel even the devil trying to destroy, we look to Christ. That's our only hope. He endured temptation. Not only that, he has gained the victory. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has broken the power of evil. And he gives grace. He gives grace. He gives grace to say no. He gives grace to crucify sinful desire. He gives grace to repent even of the thoughts and the, and the, and the motives that have given in to sin already. He gives grace to make us stand strong. He gives grace. He says, Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. We can endure. God has made a way through Christ for us to endure temptation. And He even forgives us when we have stumbled. And then finally, fourth from verse 13. I overlooked it, but let me just say it again. God will also provide or make a way to escape. And, and, and maybe this will be helpful as we, if you're in a situation in life right now, maybe you feel overwhelmed by the challenges of worldliness in your work environment or in another situation, and you feel as if, how can I get through this one? Yes, God is giving grace, and yes, God is helping. He, you feel God's presence. You feel His, His grace sustaining you even, perhaps, as a, as a true believer. And yet, sometimes you wonder, and you, you feel even the weaknesses. Maybe you stumbled. Maybe in this last week, you've stumbled into sin again. And you've given in to it. But God makes a way of escape. Let me say it this way. All temptations have an exit door. All temptations have an exit door. You see above the doors in the back, there's that red sign, E-X-I-T. I see four of them. The exit door. All temptations have an exit door. If this place was on fire, we know exactly where to run, don't we? And if you're being tempted, my friend, if you're trying to cover it, you're trying to hide it, you're trying to fight yourself, stop it. It won't help you. Run for the exit door. Who is our exit door from all temptation? It's Jesus Christ. Run for Christ. Now, I'm I'm, I'm stretching this a bit perhaps, but it's true. This is the gospel, isn't it? Every temptation is an exit door. And as you look to Christ, you might not know your way out. Maybe it's overwhelming to you right now. Look to Christ. Somehow or other through this maze called life, he will show the way. Look for the exit door. Stop looking at yourself or trying to do it yourself. You see, that guards us against fatalism, doesn't it? Sometimes when you're being tempted, you just feel like, ah, give in and give up. Let's get it over with because there's no hope anyways. I'm going to fall on this one. I'm too weak. Not so. It doesn't have to be that way. In Christ, there is an exit door. In Christ, we can stand by His grace. Where is your confidence placed? And so Paul gives us the proverb, Wherefore, let him that thinks he standeth take heed. That's the warning. And Paul gives the answer too. God has made a way of escape. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. He is there with sustaining grace. You remember the picture in Pilgrim's Progress in the interpreter's house. There was the one side of the wall with, and there was a fire. And one side the fire, I think it was, the fire was being put out, right? But the other side oil was being poured on. And that's a picture of Christ's graces. I hope I got that right. But the Christ's graces continually supplying us the need to, to stand, not in our own strength, but through Him. So-called strong Christians think they can stand in their own strength. 
But when we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the Lord. And we are strong in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. But then finally, our third thought. We've looked at the warning. We've looked at the solution. Trust in Christ alone. Now let's consider just a few thoughts as we bring this to a close. A few thoughts to take action. And the first is that word, take heed. Take heed. It's interesting how many times I did a paper at a conference some, a couple years ago and this was particularly in theological education, but I started by Google searching in the Greek the, the word take heed because it's amazing how many times you find that in letters of Paul and throughout. You can do a search it yourself in a concordance. Take heed. I'll just read a few verses. Ephesians 5, verse 15. See then, take heed, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Or Colossians 2, verse 8. Beware, which is also the same word in the Greek, take heed. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit, you know, the things they teach you at college these days. Lest they spoil you with these things, beware, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Or Hebrews 3, verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Or 2 John, verse 8, look to yourselves, same word again, take heed that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Brothers, sisters, Church of God in Kalamazoo, take heed. Many have fallen. We all are being tempted. The devil wants to destroy us. He wants you he wants fathers to fall and take their children with him. How many children have been, have been damaged spiritually by fathers who are unfaithful? I see it all the time. He wants mothers to be distracted by, by those indwelling sins. He wants grandparents to, to, to not set the right example for their children, for their grandchildren. He wants church leaders especially. The target is painted on us. Brothers, sisters, pray for your leaders. Satan has a target on them. He wants them to fall. Take heed. None of us are strong in our own strength. And as soon as we think we are, we're in great danger. That's the first thing. Second, trust in Christ alone. I'm going to say this again because it's so pivotal. Trust in Christ alone. Not confidence in ourselves. Never. Confidence in Christ alone. He forgives. He cleans. He restores those who have fallen. He prays for His people, even now before the throne, praying for His people. He graces with endurance. He sends His Spirit to, to work grace, to distribute grace freely, grace, lavish grace for every temptation replace pray for grace to replace self-confidence with Christ dependence pray for grace to replace self-confidence with Christ dependence is your faith real many in the old testament church were baptized many ate the manna many drank from the rock, but as Hebrews says, their carcasses were left in the wilderness. Spiritually, they didn't make it to the promised land. I don't say that to scare us. I say that so that we will take heed. Take heed. Trust in Christ alone. And then action as well. Action. Inspect your defenses is what I wrote in my notes here. Because the warning, the warning should be applied in actual living. We put on the seatbelt when we get in our car, don't we? Because that is the means God has provided us in order to protect us should there be a, an accident on the way home. God has graciously given us intelligence so we can design seatbelts and airbags and all the other protections that we take so seriously in life. 
and we ought to. But sometimes we, we don't give enough attention to spiritual seatbelts, if I can use that expression. What is our spiritual seatbelts? The means that God has given us to protect us from danger. I can think of many. Um, studying God's Word. It's amazing how quickly uh, verses will sometimes come to mind when we memorize them to protect us, to remind us of a danger, perhaps. Biblical thinking is a wonderful protection against false views and ideologies and worldviews, perhaps, that we might encounter. Spiritual advisors, what a blessing to have men and women who know the Lord and are walking with Him. We can, we can learn from them. Young people, don't despise the leaders of the church. Don't look past these these, these men and women who have, who have, been, who have experienced the Lord's uh, challenge, you know, challenges in life and the Lord's blessing too, even in these challenges. What are we doing to protect ourselves? An accountability partner, a godly friend is a wonderful blessing. A wonderful blessing. Someone we can spend time with, yes, but someone who also has the courage to say, how are you doing spiritually? Is your walk with the, somebody actually asked me that question two weeks, two months ago, two and a month and a half ago, just out of the blue? He says, "Are you walking closer with the Lord today than you were a half a year ago?" Wonderful, wonderful. Pastors don't often get that question, and it's good. It's right. We should be asking each other that question, and we need friends that are close enough so that we can give an honest answer as well, right? And open up with them. These are these are graces, seat belts, as it were, that the Lord gives us in a church family that protect us. Faithful devotions and prayer. I really should have said that first because when we think we're standing, ah, that's when we are most susceptible. But when we're dependent on Christ, being fed daily from His Word and personally communing with Him in prayer, then, then we're safer. We're on safe ground, not in ourselves, but in this relationship with Him. And there's many things we could say here. Spiritual firewalls for those who are more IT-related, or spiritual virus detection. You could use these examples, right? These ideas of what are we doing to be aware of what might cause us to stumble? What are we doing to help our young people see the dangers, the temptations? You know, young people, we, it's often we don't see the danger of the technology or the other situations, but it's the parents or, or other godly people in their lives that can help them see these things. Guarding against danger, fleeing worldliness, fleeing from worldliness, habits of holiness. There's so many things, really, that we should think about here. And then, finally, fourth, yield yourselves unto God. That's the greatest defense, really. Not living for self, not trusting in yourself, but giving yourself back to God, out of thankfulness for His grace. I'm just going to read a section from Romans 6, because I think it says it best. Romans 6 from verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, you know, doing things with our body that creates sin or makes us unrighteous. But yield yourselves unto God. So that's the opposite. Paul says, stop giving yourself to sin and the pleasures of sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, made alive in Christ, right? And your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Paul is saying, give yourselves to God as a holy temple for His, His reasonable service to worship Him with your lives 100%. Yield yourselves unto God. Or as Psalm 119 says, order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Or David, as I read it earlier, Psalm 19, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. 
Let them not have dominion over me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Living as daily sacrifices to God for his glory will keep us from the addicting power of sin in our lives. So Paul's warning to us, verse 12, verse 13, and then he closes it off with verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from worldliness. And of course, flee to Christ who keeps us. Keeps us from sin. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we confess that in ourselves there is no good thing. And so quickly, so quickly we will stumble and fall. We also confess our hope in Christ that in Him there is forgiveness. In Him there is restoration. In Him there is grace. Grace to say no and resist every temptation. And even more so, we thank Thee that Thy Son is praying for us, Thy people. And we pray that each person here may know the joyful sound of this gospel truth, that there is forgiveness with Thee that Thou mayest be feared. And that they may know by experience, too, the intercessions, the prayers of the Savior. I have prayed for this one, that thy, their faith fail not. Lord, we pray that Thou will strengthen us for we know the devil wants to destroy. But we pray that thou wilt strengthen this church, thy people, and that thou wilt add to her number and make her strong, a strong witness of thy grace and thy love and thy restoring mercy as well to others. Bless us in this week. Help us to stand strong in thy truth by thy grace alone. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.